0: Sorry about that. Well, turn in your Bibles please to Luke chapter 4. For those of you that are making notes, I've called this message a great anticlimax. And we're going to be looking together at some of Luke chapter 4. You know, if you are new to Sovereign Grace, or you are just visiting with us this morning, one of the things you are going to discover pretty quickly is we love the Bible. We believe the Bible is God's word. We believe it is breathed out by God and spoken by God. And accordingly, it is alive and active and sufficient for everything we need in our lives, which is what it claims to be. And so we love to go through books of the Bible. And as a local church, we're presently going through the Gospel of Luke. We're going through it line by line. It's going to take us about a year and a half, something like that. But we really don't care at all. Because God's word is amazing and comes alive in our eyes. And so we're going to read together this morning, Luke chapter 4, from verse 14 through to the end of verse 30. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went throughout through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray and ask the Lord for his help. Lord, I do thank you for this morning. I thank you that our time together is a gift from you. Lord, I pray that this text would come alive in our eyes this morning. Would we feel as if we are in the synagogue with Jesus in this moment? Would we hear his words as if it'd be him speaking to us? Would we, we understand that in reality, through his spirit, it is him still speaking to us? So, Lord, would your word come alive in our hands this morning? Would it all be for your glory? In Jesus' precious name, amen. You know, growing up in the United Kingdom as I did in England, November the 5th was always a special night. November the 5th was always a special night because in England, for everybody, and in all of Britain, November the 5th is Guy Fawkes Night. It is a day where we celebrate the failed gunpowder plot of 1605. Now, As I've got older, I've thought, it's pretty weird that we celebrate that. I mean, are we celebrating the fact that he actually tried to blow up the houses of the parliament? Or are we celebrating the fact that they caught him and then brutally murdered him? I'm not sure. But either way, it's a little bit twisted. You know, on this night, you actually get tons of fireworks. As a family, you set these fireworks off. And you often build a bonfire and put an effigy of Guy Fawkes on the fire. And all the kids gather around. Oh, isn't this nice? It's really creepy. However, when you grow up in it, you think, this is amazing. Because it's fireworks night. And what do kids love? Fireworks. We love fireworks. And so growing up in the United Kingdom, November the 5th was a wonderful evening that I will always treasure. And I will never forget November the 5th, 1985. Because at 10 years old, I was chosen to light the last firework. When you're 10 years old, this is a big deal. I was so excited for weeks that I got to light. Finally, I had come of age where my father thought I was responsible enough to light a firework. For weeks, we had the build-up to this moment. We went to the Hills Department store. We looked in all the cases to find the best fireworks we could. We bought a box. And then my dad said, you can choose a rocket to finish the display. I found the biggest rocket you could find. I was about this tall. The rocket was about this tall. It was amazing. had this huge stick on the bottom with this rocket on the top. It even came with its own launcher. And so all week, I keep going into the office where the rocket was being kept. I kept smelling it and getting really excited. You know, you can smell that gunpowder. You think, this thing is going to go off. Probably the whole town will see my firework. And as I've said before, I grew up in the Shire. So if you've seen Lord of the Rings there, fireworks, I'm imagining mine will be similar. Everybody will come out and see this firework. When it came to November the 5th, 1985, the display was good. My dad did a wonderful job, but then I walked out with my firework. Put the rocket in the tube. I lit the rocket. It went up and up and up, and I am waiting for this. Boom! And instead, it just went, <laughs> And that was it. It was the greatest anticlimax of my life. This thing had promised so much, but it delivered so little. And when you're 10, I was distraught. I was destroyed. I've got to wait another year before we can try again. I thought this rocket was going to be wonderful, but it delivered nothing. It was a great anticlimax. And for all of us in our lives at different times, we do face these types of anticlimactic moments, don't we? Moments that promise so much. But in reality, deliver so little. And right here in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 30, we have one of those anticlimactic moments right here in this text. A moment which promises so much but delivers so little. A moment which is a great anticlimax. See, for those of us that are a part of the church and that have been journeying with us through the book of Luke so far, you will know by now that Dr. Luke, at great pains, has helped us see Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. He's the one that everybody has been waiting for. And he showed us this in numerous different ways. He showed us this with the virgin birth in both its announcement and its arrival. The virgin birth, Jesus is announced by the angel Gabriel. His mom receives news that even though you're young and you've never slept with a man, you're going to have a baby, Mary. And his name will be Jesus and he will be the son of God. And then nine months later, that's exactly what happens. Jesus is born into the squalor of a borrowed stable. Mary gives birth. And when that actually takes place, the angels break in through the heavenly realms up in the hill country with these shepherds. And the shepherds see these angels declaring to God, glory to God in the highest. And they're told today, a savior has been born to you. So they run down and they meet Jesus and they worship him. We then see the same taking place at the baby dedication. When Jesus is dedicated by his mum and dad, Simeon and Anna start worshiping and praising God as they realize this is him, Mary and Joseph, this is the one we've been waiting for. This is Jesus, the son of God. And then when Jesus is 30 years old and he gets baptized, we see once again the heavens being torn apart. We see the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. And we see a voice from heaven, namely the voice of the father declaring, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Time and time again, Luke is helping us see this Jesus is the son of God. He's the Messiah, the savior that the whole world has been waiting for. And now we see Jesus having been tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. We see in verses 14 and 15 that over the last few months, which the other gospels help us see, we're talking about months, not just five minutes, he's been preaching and teaching and performing miracles in all of Galilee. And all of Galilee is marveling at him. One would assume then, that this historic homecoming that we see here in verses 16 through 30 Would indeed be an incredible one. Jesus is the ultimate homeboy. He's grown up in Nazareth. He's coming back to Nazareth. Everybody in Galilee is talking about what he's doing. He's preaching. He's healing people. He's performing miracles. And guess what? He's coming home. You would think this would be an amazing moment in their story as a town of Nazareth. But it's not. Although the rocket goes up to start off with and it's boding well, it ends up being a great anticlimax. Things happen that we never would have imagined. It promises so much but delivers so little. And what we actually see in this text, if we pay careful attention, is a great anticlimax. And yet it is a great anticlimax that leaves us with a decision to make. Every one of us in the room, you think you're reading the text, but this morning it's reading you. See, in Luke chapter one, verse four, Luke tells us that I've written all these things so that you may be certain of the things that you've been taught. He wants us to be certain so that we may know it and respond and make a decision accordingly. Its eyes are actually on us. It's written for us. And so what we have here is a great anticlimax that leaves us all with a decision to make. Three points then this morning. Jesus the preacher. Number two, Jesus the rejected. And then number three, Jesus the choice. And it is my hope in it all that we will see that this is a great anticlimax that leaves us all with a decision to make. Point one then, Jesus the preacher. Everything seems to start well, like the moment when I lit that firework in 1985, it takes off well, things seem to be going well. So look with me at verse 16. It says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Jesus arrives in his hometown of Nazareth. It's the place where he's grown up. And you would think that this would be a special moment for him. He knows everybody in the room. Everybody knows him. This is Jesus. The one that used to hang out with our little Mikey and play soccer with him on the weekend. Everybody knows who Jesus is. This is a special moment. His popularity is already huge in the surrounding area. And to start off with, it is special. Jesus is the special guest at the synagogue this morning, and Jesus has been invited in to come and read the scripture and indeed give a sermon on what he's reading. See, whenever you read the word synagogue in the Bible, we have to understand the synagogue was effectively like the Jewish church of the day. This is what they do on the Sabbath. They gather together as the people of God. They come together to worship him, to pray And then someone will read a text and then someone will actually preach the word of God. They'll actually expound it and explain it to the congregation gathered. See, so often we think of church today as like what the temple was like, but that's not really the case. People would only go to the temple a couple of times a year, but they went to the synagogue each and every week. The synagogue was effectively the local church of the day. And so each and every week, that's what they do. They come together as the people of God. They hear preaching, they hear teaching. And today... We would imagine that this synagogue is packed out because it's better than the baby dedication. Jesus, the one who is claiming to the Messiah, you know, the kid that grew up here, he's coming home. And he's got a few words he wants to share with us. These circumstances are unusual. They are circumstances of the hometown boy makes good. And so this synagogue would likely have been packed. And Jesus then begins to read. And to give a sermon. Look with me at verse 17. And we'll read to 21. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And recovering of sight to the blind. And set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You know, Jesus, as he's passed the scroll from Isaiah, something he likely worked out with the attendant before he even arrived. He begins to actually read to them parts of Isaiah 58, And Isaiah 61, which is what is recorded right there. And then he sits down. Now, I thought at the start of this text, maybe he just takes his seat back in the audience. But actually, that's not the way it worked in this culture. Whoever did the reading would then sit. And so it's quite different to what we're doing now. In this culture, the preacher would sit down and you would all stand up. I like that. I might introduce it to this church. And so that's what Jesus does. He reads and then he sits down. And so all eyes are fixed on him because he is preparing to preach. And it tells us that in that moment, with all eyes on him, he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He uses the word began there from Dr. Luke, because this isn't all he said. That was his opening introductory statement. And then he goes on to preach to them. And oh my, what a sermon this must have been. As Jesus explains to them, everything that Isaiah said in 58 and 61, everything that was prophesied about me 700 years ago, today it is being fulfilled in your presence. I'm he. I'm the one that you have been waiting for. We don't have all the contents of Jesus' sermon written out before us. But we can piece together from the rest of the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament what it was indeed that he was talking about. See, Jesus Christ was the Messiah that was always promised. He is the one with the spirit of the Lord had come upon to anoint him. We saw that in the baptism, did we not? When Jesus gets baptized and the heavens open and the spirit of God descends on him like a dove. He's anointing him in that moment for his ministry and mission, exactly like it was prophesied the Holy Spirit would 700 years earlier. Jesus been anointed with by the Holy Spirit for his mission and ministry. And as Jesus sits down and begins to give the sermon to this synagogue in a moment, explaining everything that Isaiah prophesied is being fulfilled in me. Oh my, what a sermon this must have been. You see, the five things that are outlined there in Isaiah 58 and 61 are exactly what Jesus has come to do. First and foremostly, Jesus has come to proclaim good news to the poor. You know, he's not talking there about the material or the financial poor. It can include that, but that's not what he's talking about in this moment. In Isaiah, and then when it's requoted by Jesus, he's talking about the spiritually poor. Those that recognize, I need a saviour. Those that recognize, I can't do this by myself. I can't make right with God by myself. I need, I need a savior to help me. People that are humble enough to understand that they're poor in spirit. And Jesus says, you know what? I've come after those guys. I've come for them. For blessed are the poor in spirit. And I've come to preach good news to them. Because the savior that they're looking for, I am he. And then he continues that how he's come to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, to be a captive of something or somebody is to be in bondage to someone or something. And in the natural, the Bible helps us see time and time again that we are all in bondage to our sin. Jesus himself says it in John chapter 8, verse 34. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. He explains it, that when we sin in our lives, which is something that we all do, as soon as that takes place, we're actually in bondage to it. It's like we can't help ourselves; We can't seem to get out of it. We seem to keep doing it, even when we don't want to keep doing it. That's why the Apostle Paul, in Romans 7, verse 24, says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's aware this is a nightmare. This is always a challenge in my life. I keep sinning all the time. It's so difficult. The apostle Paul himself goes on to explain, there is one who's come to break the power of canceled sin in my life. There is one who has come to pay the penalty and to break the power of sin in my life. And his name is Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to them here. He has come to proclaim liberty to the captives. He has come to break the power of canceled sin and to set the prisoner free. And on the cross three years later, that's exactly what he does. He breaks the power of canceled sin in our lives. It's penalty and it's power in our lives. And then he explains in verse 18 there that he's also come to give sight to the blind. See, in the natural, not only are we captives to sin, but we're blind to that. We can't see. We just sang about it in the song Amazing Grace. I was blind, but now I see. It's not talking there about physical blindness. It's talking about spiritual blindness. I just couldn't see it before. Before I became a Christian, I just don't get it. What are these people on about? Why are they waving their hands in the air? Are they waving at somebody? It just seems so crazy. Because we're blind. The Bible says we're blind. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, it says, In their case, meaning the unbeliever, in their case, the God of this world, namely Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It explains in the Bible that in the natural, we're blind. We're not only captives to our sin, but we can't see what all the fuss is about. And yet Jesus comes and he says, I've come to make the blind have sight. I've come to open people's eyes to the reality of who I am and what I've come to do for them. He, that's why in the Bible we see so many miracles with blind people. Is it like, it's not like 2000 years ago the only sicknesses people had was blindness. They're just pointing out that, listen, Jesus heals a ton of blind people. Why? Because he wants to give physical representation of what he has come to do for people in their spirituality. You were blind. But now you can see. Jesus, as he sits in the synagogue with this crowd about them, he tells them, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. I've come to proclaim liberty to the captives. I've come to give sight to the blind. He then tells them he's come to set at liberty those Who are oppressed. And I love that. You know, to be oppressed simply means to be broken, shattered, or bruised. You know, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in our world today that are shattered, broken, or bruised, are they not? There are thousands of people in Sydney that are shattered, or broken, or bruised. It's probably people in this room that are shattered or broken or bruised. And as Jesus looks us in the eye this morning, he helps us see, that's why I've come. I've come to give you freedom. I've come to help you. In Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus himself says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is a king who is gentle and lowly, who deeply and sincerely loves and cares for people. And so exactly what Isaiah prophesied, Jesus is saying, that's exactly why I came. I come to proclaim liberty, to help people who are bruised and shattered and broken. And then in verse 19, he also explains how he's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You know, this is without doubt a reference to the Jewish year of Jubilee. And if you're a Jew, that was a sweet year. It was the year where all debts were forgiven, all land was returned to its original owners. And just generally, everyone got a brand new start. And Jesus rocks on up and takes his seat in the synagogue and looks him in the eye and says, that's exactly why I've come. I've come to give you a brand new start. I've come to make a way for you to be forgiven of your sin." I've come to make a way for you to be justified before the Father. I've come to make a way for you to be adopted into the very family of God and know that heaven is your eternal home. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there when Jesus is preaching this sermon to this crowd in this moment? Wouldn't you have loved to have heard him? You know, I've had the privilege of listening to many good preachers in my life, but I would love to listen to Jesus. (laughs) I would love to hear him expounding his scriptures, explaining everything that was prophesied. That is all me. I am the one who has come to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to give sight to the blind, to libertize those who are oppressed. I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord. I've come. The wait's over. I'm home. I would have loved to have been there. And their response, as this rocket continues to go up, appears momentarily good. Verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They're marveling. They're marveling at him. You see, as they hear these words, they are indeed captivated and charmed by what he has to say. They're thrilled with what he has to say. But here's the problem. They don't believe it. They don't believe it at all. They're captivated by it. They're charmed by it. This is one of those moments where it's like, oh, bless him. He grew up here. I remember when he played with my Mikey on the weekends. He speaks so well. Don't believe anything he's saying, though. That's what's happening here. And we know that because of the very words that come next in verse 22. This is where the whole thing starts to turn. It says, They all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming for his mouth. And then they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And the rejection has now already started. They admired his words, but they are totally unmoved and unaffected by their meaning. They admire what he has to say. They hear the metaphors, but they don't feel that any of the metaphors of being poor or in captivity or in need for liberty. They don't feel that any of them respond or resonate with them, and neither do they want them to. And so their conclusion is, hey, isn't it just Joseph's son anyway? I remember him. And already they're starting to reject him. Which takes me to my second point. Number two, Jesus, the rejected. And look again then at verse 23. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. You know, we don't use that proverb today, physician, heal yourself. And if we do, I've never heard anybody say it to me. But what it simply means is, hey, listen, you say this is who you are, prove it. You're just Joseph's son. If you're really the son of God, if you're really the Messiah, then prove it. Physician, heal thyself. All these miracles then that you've been doing around Capernaum and Galilee, well, let's see see what you got now. Get your hat out. Find the rabbit. Let's do it. They are, in effect, putting Jesus to the test in this moment. And it's so grieving because in all reality, they already have more than enough evidence to believe in him. They have been hearing for months about all that has been taking place in Galilee, which is effectively their state, and Capernaum. They've been hearing for months about what is taking place. And Galilee is not a big place, okay? It is 60 kilometers by 40 kilometers. The entire state, to give you a clue, that's the size of Adelaide, Greater Adelaide. So if something happened in Greater Adelaide and you live in Adelaide, guess what? You're probably going to hear about it. It's going to be in all the papers. Everybody's talking about it. People would have had family members that are coming and saying, hey, listen, you know that kid that grew up here, Jesus? He's performing miracles out there. I saw him. I saw him heal blind people. They, in reality, already have more than enough evidence that something is unique and completely different about him. David Gooding in his Luke commentary says it this way. He says their response was irrational, or at least not a national, or a non-rational or at least a non-rational emotional bias. The difficulty was on their side and not on his. And so they would have to recognize this and overcome it if ever they were going to be fair to this evidence. It's so true. They'd already heard lots of evidence of all that Jesus was saying and doing and all his miracles and healings. They already had more than enough. But they had already had an emotional bias that it can't be true. And don't think for a moment that if Jesus started to perform in front of them that they'd go, oh, I see. I'll respond to you. Millions of people didn't. And Jesus knows that. But more than that, He knows that at the heart of their rejection is actually not that he's not producing miracles in front of them. At the heart of their rejection of him in in this moment is their sinful and religious pride and self-sufficiency. It's their sinful and religious pride. Because as far as they're concerned, we're Jews. We're God's people. We have the temple. We have the Torah. We have everything we need. And so any reference to them possibly being poor and in need, it's like, no thanks. We're fine because of the color of my skin and the way I behave. I'm sure God will be cool with me. And Jesus knows that. He knows that the heart of their rejection is their religious and sinful pride and self-sufficiency. Quite frankly, they feel no need for a savior, no need for him. And he starts to pick up on that through two famous Old Testament examples where he starts to help them see the reality of what's going on in their heart and how they really should be responding before him. Look with me at verses 25 through 27. It says, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, where the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came in over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Two examples, two examples that seem really different, but actually they are really, really similar. The first example he gives them then is the illustration of Elijah and the widow This is a story that's actually recorded for us in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 17. And it's a story that tells us about how a prophet Elijah encountered a woman gathering sticks to kindle a fire so that she could bake a meal for her and a son. And as a result, her premise all along was, you know what, this is going to be our last last meal. So I'm doing this so we may eat and die. There has been a famine in the land for the last three and a half years. She has only got one small piece of food left. All money has come out. All food has gone. Her story is coming to an end. So I'm going to make a fire. I'm going to make one final meal. And then we're going to eat it. And we're going to die. But God sends Elijah to her. A prophet. And this is what Elijah says. In 1 Kings 17 verses 13 to 14. He says, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth." This man of God tells her what she needs to do. And do you know what she does? She listens to the man of God. She believes what he says, and she does exactly that. She goes ahead and she makes a cake for Elijah. And as Elijah eats it, you know what happens? For the rest of this entire famine, for the rest of this entire time, her pantry never runs out of flour or oil. It's not complicated. She's heard a man of God. She recognizes a need. She responds to him in faith, and as a result, she's saved. Not hard. It then uses another illustration, Elisha and Naaman does it in verse 27. This story is a story that's recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 5. And it tells the story of a man called Naaman, who's actually the commander of the Syrian army at the time. The challenge was he had leprosy. And so he's sent by his friend, his king of Assyria, and the king of Syria, to Elisha, Because the king of Syria has heard that Elisha, this prophet again in Israel, can can seem to heal people. So maybe he'll heal you. Well, the king of Israel at the time is convinced this is a bit of a scam. Syrians in Israel, yeah, they don't go on too well. It's a bit of history there. Started like way back. And so he's convinced that he's going to come here and they're going to try and take us over. They're going to try and kill us. But Elisha says, no, I believe God's in this. He the king and he meets with Naaman. And he sends a messenger to Naaman and he says, Listen, if you want to be healed, go dip yourself in the river Jordan seven times and God will heal you. So what happens? Naaman does it. In 2 Kings chapter 5 verse 14. So Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Once again, man of God is speaking. Naaman, this gentle he listens, he believes, he goes and does exactly what he says. And what happens? He's saved. He listens and he's saved. You know, for these Jews in the synagogue, as you are sitting here today listening to Jesus, they are perceptive and they know exactly what he is saying to them. They have no mistake where he is hinting with all of these different things. They know that he is driving through their front door at this moment of time. And they are agitated. They understand that Jesus is saying in this moment that they shouldn't need any miracles of their own. They instinctively understand that you're helping us see that we've heard about it from all of Galilee and we have. And so they understand that Jesus is saying to them, you shouldn't need any miracles of your own. And they understand that Jesus is saying to them, you are the poor and you are the blind and you are the captives and you are the oppressed of the book of Isaiah. And they're totally offended at that. Jesus himself says, today, this is being fulfilled in your midst. They instinctively know, so you're talking about us. But we are not the poor. We are not the oppressed. How dare you call us that? Because they're proud. Who amongst us likes being called a wretch? Uh, behold the Jews. They don't either. They thought, I'm quite good to be honest. I'm quite good. I'm pretty sure God will accept me because I do a lot of things right. I mean, I come on a Sunday and I give to charity now and again and I help people. I should be sweet. And they instinctively understand That Jesus is saying, you are the poor, you are the blind, you are the wretches, you are the oppressed, you need a saviour. And they are utterly offended then that he would use Gentile examples to help them see what they need to do. You have to understand that this period in Israel, there is an awful lot of pride and nationalism and an awful lot of prejudice about every other race. Every other race is second class to them as far as they're concerned. How dare you then use these second-class citizens as examples of what we need to do? They are proud, they are arrogant, they are self-sufficient, and now, as a result, they are angry. Who do you think you are coming in our synagogue and sharing those things? The anticlimax has well and truly begun. And then it goes to the extreme. Look with me at verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. What a tragedy! They have Jesus, the Son of God, in their midst. And now they're trying to throw him off a cliff. Kent Hughes says it this way. He says, think of it. They had seen Jesus grow from infancy to manhood. Even though they had never dreamed he was God, they certainly knew his character firsthand. They had never seen him do anything wrong. He had never lied, never disobeyed. Never been unkind. In fact, he was the most loving, thoughtful, and winsome person they had ever known. He was undoubtedly locally famous for his acts of mercy, and he was the most lovely being they had ever encountered. Listen. But then Jesus cut through their comfortable religious facade, and they tried to lynch him. It's so true. In a moment, Jesus cut through their religious facade where they thought, we're pretty good. And they're so irritated by what he's saying that they try to lynch him. If there was ever proof of Paul's words in Romans 8 verse 7, that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. If there's ever proof needed for that, then behold the proof. He was their boy. And yet they grab him. How dare you tell us that we are poor and oppressed and that we need a savior? We are so irritated by what you are saying. How dare you use Gentiles as examples? How dare you not perform for us when we want you to? They grab him and they take him up the hill and they want to shove him off. It was only a miracle that saved him. It doesn't tell us what the miracle is, but when I get to heaven, I'm sure going to be asking, was it a Jedi trick? I don't know. But he escapes him. And it wasn't because he was afraid of dying. Just a few years on from this, he would indeed be dying on a hill in their place. It's just this wasn't the time. This wasn't the moment where he would give his life away as a ransom for many. That was still to come. And so he escapes the crowd in this moment. But oh my goodness, what a great anticlimax this is. You know, this scene no doubt finishes with such great sadness, doesn't it? They had Jesus in front of them. They had the King of Kings and Lord of Lords right there. They had the Holy One of Israel preaching to them right in front of their eyes. And they completely and utterly reject him in this moment. Yet in God's kindness, this scene also finishes, I believe, with such pregnancy. And it's such pregnancy because in reality, all eyes now go off the synagogue to you and to me. And the question then remains is how will you react to Jesus? What will you do with him? See, you already told us in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, I'm writing all these things, giving you all this evidence so that you may be certain about what you've been taught. Certain about who Jesus was and why he came. And the inference all along then is how will you react as the eyes now go on you? And that takes me to my conclusion, point three, Jesus, the choice. My friends, what we have here in front of us is indeed a great anticlimax. But it is a great anticlimax that leaves us all, every one of us in the room in this moment, with an important decision to make. See, if you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you, this text is written for you. And it's written to try and help you see, don't make the same mistake that these Nazarenes made. Don't reject Jesus like they did. But instead, embrace him and make him the Lord and Savior of your life and then be saved. See, the storyline of the Bible is wonderful. It teaches us that God made us. That God actually knitted us together in our mother's womb like each of the babies and children we've seen on the stage this morning. It teaches us that God made us to find our identity and our joy and our freedom and satisfaction in him. That's what we were designed to do. But the challenge is each and every one of us, really early on in our lives, decided we were going to exchange the king for the kingdom. I want your stuff. I want all these things that you've made, but I don't want you thank you very much. That's what sin is. It's rebellion against the creator, rebellion against God himself. It's so sad because we were made for that satisfaction in him. And when we haven't got it, we try and find satisfaction in 101 other things, but it never works out. Which is why the world is in such a mess today. When sin came into the world, all sorts of destruction. This whole place is broken. And God could have left us there. But he didn't. Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God sent his only begotten son on the greatest rescue mission ever told and it's the one we've been looking at in the synagogue throughout this entire sermon. It was Jesus. Jesus clothed in flesh came after us. He came as the savior of the world. That's always who he claimed to be. He claimed to be God who had come after us so that he could give his life away as a ransom for many so that we could be saved. He came to preach good news to the poor. He came to set the captives free. He came to give sight to the blind and liberty to the oppressed. He came to reclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the question then that we all have to answer is, how am I going to respond to that? How am I going to respond to what he's done? You know, in all of history, people have been responding in many different ways. For some, they hear this message, and they leave saying, but isn't that just Joseph's son? Isn't he just a guy? I think he was just a teacher. I think he was just a nice leader. Maybe he was a prophet. I don't know. But son of God, give me a break. And so we leave. In effect... Like these Nazarenes in the moment, simply saying, But isn't this just Joseph's son? For other people, they leave having heard the truth about Jesus, simply saying, Listen, I'm open to believing, but I want more miracles first. You prove to me. You prove to me. Failing to recognize that this book is filled with page after page after page after page of proof. But we're not interested in that. I want you like a genie in the lamp to perform in front of me today and then I might believe. That's what the Nazarenes were like. It's what many Jews were like actually. They wanted him to perform before they would believe and fail to recognize he has shown you in here again and again and again how incredible he is. He's done all that he needs to show you that he is the son of God. And yet people leave. On the premise, no, I want him to perform some more miracles for me first. And sadly, then other people respond thinking they're already fine. I'm cool. I think God will accept me. I'm a pretty nice person. I mean, I don't hold grudges against people. I give to charity sometimes. I pray. I mean, I come to church like loads, like Easter and Christmas and stuff. And like, I'm there all the time. And we think because of my behavior, because of things I do, that God's going to look at me on that last day and go, nice one. You were such a great guy. That's exactly what the Nazarenes do. We're doing it, right? I mean, I've we, we got it going on. My behavior will get me in. When Jesus says all the time, no, for all fall short of the glory of God. You need a savior and I am he. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. My friends, the response the Bible is looking for is this. One thing. Faith. It's looking for faith. It's looking for people that will bow the knee, exactly what these Nazarenes should have done in this moment. Namely, hit their knees and said, oh, listen, I want to follow you. Thank you for coming. We repent of our sin. We put our faith in you as our Lord and Savior. At which point in that moment, they would have been wonderfully and completely saved. Jesus says when we put our faith in him as our Lord and Savior, he forgives us of our sin. He redeems us into the family of God. He adopts us into his very family. He assures us that heaven will be our home. It is when we entrust our life to him through faith that we get saved. The response of the text is not trying to throw Jesus off a cliff spiritually and ignore what he's saying. The response of the text is, I want to follow you. So I put my faith in you. You know, I was 20 years old when I did that. I'm now 45. 45. And there hasn't been a day in my life where I've looked back and regretted that decision. I wish I'd known earlier (laughs) so I could have got saved earlier. But when I put my faith in Jesus Christ when I was was 20 years old as my Lord and Savior, it completely changed my life. I knew what it was in my life to have a brand new start. I knew what it was like to actually be forgiven of my sin. I knew what it was like to actually know God as a friend. Weird stuff started happening. It's like, hey, I really feel he's near. "Mm -hmm, That's because he is. And I was never afraid of death again because I knew when I die that's going to probably be the greatest day of my life because that's when I'll go meet him and be with him. My friends, put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Don't wait another day. One of the saddest things about this story as you scour through the Gospels is there is no reference to Jesus ever returning to Nazareth. Maybe this was their time. Maybe they made their choice and he moved on. Don't just move on today. Put your faith in him and know him for yourself. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, make the decision to not copy the grievous mistake of the Nazarenes, but instead put your faith in him as they should have always done. And you will be saved. And my friends, if you're here today and you are already a Christian, you've already put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I simply want to encourage you to make the decision afresh today to see Jesus for who he really is. For he's the one who set you free. He's the one who paid the price at Calvary for the penalty of your sin. And he's the one who broke the chains of sin in your life, broke the power of sin in your life so that you could rise and go forth and follow thee. He alone is the one who gave you sight. You were blind, you couldn't see, you had no interest in the Lord. But in a moment, boom, he broke in your life, the shackles fell, you saw it and you wanted to respond, right? That's because of his work in your life. He's the one who sets the captives free. He's the one that opens blind eyes and he is the one who has given you a brand new start. Only he can forgive you and redeem you and adopt you. And assure you and walk with you. It is all him. So see Jesus for who he really is. And stand in awe of him. Every day of your life. Let's pray. Lord I do thank you for giving us these wonderful stories.